Yesterday, I and other messengers approved by this church attended our annual meeting of the Bay Area Baptist Association. And while we were there, we heard about our director of missions, Tom Martin's continuing fight with cancer. For a couple of years now, he has been engaged with this battle against this sickness. Pastor George Eagle was not there because he was caring for his wife who recently has had to have her foot amputated because of health complications. And then as we've already mentioned earlier in the service, Pastor Ray Bosi, before he gave a very powerful sermon, he shared about his friends and relatives in the Philippines. He reminded us of the several thousand people that have been displaced, hundreds that have been killed because of mudslides and drowning. At one point, what would be a month's worth of water in a tropical climate that gets a lot of water, a month's worth of rain came down in less than an hour. Everywhere we turn in this world, it seems, we see suffering. In fact, I would say that all of us are either in the midst of suffering right now in some way, maybe little, maybe big, and if we're not, then we are about to enter into a time of suffering, or perhaps we are ending a time of suffering and going into the calm after the storm. The question that we often ask, the question that people all over the world ask in the midst of suffering is, why? Why? Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to my loved ones? Why? Why? As we continue our walk through the books of the Bible, we come to a book that embodies the experience of suffering and the desire to know why like no other book in the Bible. It's the book of Job, and here we see a man who undergoes intense suffering and like so many, asks the question, why? And many people go to the book of Job thinking they will find an answer to the question, why? And the reality is the book of Job does not ultimately give us an easy answer. It does not give us trite comments or cliche responses to this question of why. Instead, in Job, what we find is bedrock foundational truths about God and suffering upon which we can build our lives to weather those storms. If we embrace these truths that we find, if we believe them as Job believed them and was even strengthened in his belief of them by the end of the book, then we can be prepared as best as anyone can be prepared to endure faithfully through the suffering that we will inevitably experience in this life. This morning we want to read chapters 1 and 2 of Job, and later we will read part of the final chapter as we get the main thrust of the story, seeing what happens to Job, and then we will unpack that with some observations about suffering and how we can respond. So please follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read Job chapter 1 and chapter 2. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. 
Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servant with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another who said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe, and shaved his head, and fell on the ground, and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. All that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bones and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery from which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? Then all this Job did not sin with his lips. Now when three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite. They made their appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. This is the word of God. 
Job is in every way pictured as a righteous man in this book. Even God himself says there is no one like him. Yet Satan makes the argument before God that he only obeys the Lord. He only holds to his integrity because the Lord has prospered him. God knows that's not true and he permits Satan to take away virtually all that he has to prove it. But Satan isn't satisfied. He says the loss was all external. He says if the suffering gets closer, if his own body becomes the source of his suffering, then he will not remain loyal to you, God. And again, God permits Satan to attack him this time in his health. But God knows what Satan will not believe. Job is blameless. And despite what happens to him, he will not curse God. In Job, we see a man who suffers greatly. And it's from his response to that suffering, both here and throughout the book, that we find an example that we also should follow in our lives when we encounter sufferings. We want to make two observations this morning and then a final point of application. So two observations and then a third point of application. First of all, we want to see the reality of human suffering. We need to observe the reality of human suffering. The book of Job is an old book. At the very least, it's an old story. It takes place outside the land of Israel before there even was a nation of Israel, probably around the time of Abraham. Yet, Job is a man who really lived. This is not some fairy tale. This is not some story made up to tell a moral lesson. Aesop was not the author of this thing. It is rather the recounting of historical events that do show us indeed how one man endured suffering. And his suffering can be characterized in at least three ways. First of all, it was an innocent suffering. It was an innocent suffering. Now, I want to be careful here. I do not want to say that all suffering is innocent. But by innocent, I mean un deserved, that there is not something you have done that brings suffering into your life because we know that's not the case. Sin has consequences. If you engage in sinful behavior, there are natural consequences that are going to come upon you and make your life miserable. If, if you go to the same restaurant maybe every morning for your coffee or once a week for lunch and you get this same guy and he's a putz and he never gets your order right and one day you've had enough and you pop him in the face... There's going to be consequences for the actions, okay? Will God forgive you? Absolutely. But guess what? You might, you might spend a couple days in the clink, okay? Sin has consequences. Likewise, even in 1 Corinthians 11, God, we are told, used suffering to get His people's attention. We, we've talked about this before. They were coming together and they were so profaning the Lord's table by their sinfulness, by the way in which they came together, that God says, fine, I'm going to cause you to be sick. I'm going to cause some of you to die because I want to get your attention to the reality of sin that's in your life. They were being disciplined by God for their sin just as a father disciplines his children. So there are times when sin has natural consequences that are going to come upon us, but that's not always the case. That's not always the case. Sometimes there is no direct correlation between sin and the suffering that we endure. Sometimes there is no sin. So that when the, the man who was born blind, Jesus and the disciples walk through and, and they have the theology that we're going to hear about in just a few minutes from Job's friends. They said, so Jesus, who died? This man or his parents that, that he was born this way? And Jesus says, there's no sin. This man was born this way that the glory of God might be shown in him. Likewise here. Likewise today, just in general. 
today, this very day, not a week, not a month, but in the course of the 24 hours of this day, 30,000 children will die in this world from starvation and preventable diseases. Has their sin brought this about in their life? I hardly think so. Likewise, Job was innocent in his sufferings. In fact, the book goes out of the way. The author presses over and over again this point upon us. The very first verse opens by saying, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Now, blameless does not mean sinless. Job was human. He was a sinner. Even Job knew he wasn't sinless. And he talks about that later in the book. Nevertheless, when he did sin, he offered the appropriate sacrifices to God. He knew that he had sinned and he had sinned against the holy God and that atonement had to be made. Therefore, we need to understand that blamelessness does not speak to sinlessness. Rather, it speaks to his integrity as a person, the very thing that his wife talks about. Furthermore, we're told he was upright, that he faithfully adhered to what he knew to be the righteous will of God. In this way, then, he is said to be one who both feared God and turned away from evil both positive and negative. And later in chapters 29 to 31, Job recounts how he has sought to live his life blamelessly before God. We see there that with his wealth, he rescued the poor and the orphan. He assisted the dying and helped widows. He says he made a covenant with his eyes not to look lustfully at a woman. He had never committed adultery. He knew God was ever watching and truthful. Therefore, in all of his business dealings, Job said he was honest and truthful. If any of his servants had a complaint, he would deal righteously with him. Though he was of great wealth, he says, He never trusted in his wealth, nor did he gloat over those less fortunate than him. He would offer sacrifices both for his own sins and for the sins of his family acting as priest interceding for them. Here is a man who comes before the law is given, who comes before Christ has come, and he lives better than most of us in this room. He was a righteous man before God. And in the midst of the suffering that falls upon him, his friends, those silent in the opening chapters, get very verbose and begin to berate Job to confess some secret sin that surely has got to be in his life. But the whole point is there is no secret sin. Job is blameless before the Lord, and God doesn't work that way. There is such a thing as innocent, undeserved suffering. But there is also such a thing, as we see in Job's life here, of unexpected suffering. Here's a man who seems to have everything going for him. In fact, for a society that would have largely measured wealth by livestock and cattle, Job was a very rich man. In fact, he is called uh, the greatest of all the peoples of the East because of his wealth. I mean, he is, he is the, the, the mogul of the East. He, everyone looks to him and knows he is the top of the Forbes 500 list. This is, this is the man. It's Job. And yet suffering comes upon him without warning. Job's children are in the middle of a party. They're celebrating life when a windstorm comes and destroys the house they're in, killing all of them. Some invaders come and run off with his animals and kill his servants. So yet fire from heaven, whether that's lightning or literally a pillar of fire, consumes his sheep and only a handful of his servants are left alive to come and tell him all these things. In one moment, life in its fullness, parties, wealth, work, and then the next day, the next moment, tragedy suffering. No one could have seen it coming. Job couldn't have done anything to cause it, nor could he do anything to stop it. His suffering came unexpectedly. One webpage I frequent is maintained by a fellow alumnus from 
Southern Seminary. And last year, having not been on that page for a couple weeks, I was shocked to read that his newborn daughter, Abigail, had died. She was born with what appeared to be a mild cleft palate, but it turned out that she had more than that. She had an undetected hydroplastic heart syndrome. The doctors didn't know, and nine days after she was born, she died. It was a grievous time for the parents. It was unexpected suffering in their life, and yet just six months later, the wife of the man who ran the webpage, the same wife who lost her baby girl, lost her father as well due to a sudden stroke. Suffering comes very often unexpectedly into our life. We're not ready for it. We can't see it coming. It just shows up. Someone has said trying to prepare for suffering is like trying to prepare to jump into freezing cold water. You know what it might be like, but until you actually plunge into the icy depths, every time your breath is taken away. Suffering comes unexpectedly, and when it does, it is often painful. And that's what we see here in Job's life. We see painful suffering. Job not only suffered the loss of his family and his wealth, but he was also struck with the loss of his own health. Verse 7 says, Job was given loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. He took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. That was just the, the first evident symptom of whatever this illness was. Later, Job goes into more detail of the symptoms of this illness, whatever it may have been. Peeling skin in chapter 30, wart-like eruptions in chapter 7, loss of appetite, chapter 19, fever, chapter 30, sleeplessness, nightmares, chapter 7, foul breath, failing vision, and rotting teeth, chapter 16 and 19. So painful was Job's experience that when his friends came to check on him after hearing the news, we read, when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. Job was not the man he once was. Emotionally, physically, he had experienced deep suffering. But in the end, it wasn't unique suffering, was it? Innocent suffering, unexpected suffering, painful suffering comes to us all as well today. Here it came to a man who didn't deserve it. It came without warning. It's the same kind of suffering that we see is the reality for us in a world marred by sin. We see the reality of human suffering every day before our eyes. But Job says we need to also see something else. The book of Job says don't, don't just look at the reality of human suffering. You also need to see the supremacy of God's sovereignty. The supremacy of God's sovereignty. This is the second observation that we need to make. Throughout this book, and especially in these chapters, God is shown to be unequivocally sovereign over all things. That means that He has absolute authority in this world. That nothing happens apart from His will. And so let's notice a couple of things here. First of all, God is sovereign over Satan. God is sovereign over Satan. You know, when I was younger, I used to have this view of Satan that he was kind of just the anti-God, that Satan knew everything, that he was always there in every place, that he was all-powerful, he could do what he wanted to do. And it made the thought of him very frightening to a young boy. But the reality is that's not the, that's not the biblical picture of Satan. The biblical picture of Satan is that he is a created being. So that while God is limitless, Satan is limited. One of my seminary professors, I think, quoting Luther, said, Yes, Satan is real, but he is God's Satan. That is to say, he is a created being and he is on a leash and is only allowed to do as much as God wants him to do. Though he may attempt to ravage God's people and impugn God's name, he is only allowed to go so far. 
In fact, even here in our text, he, asked, he has to ask permission before he attacks Job's life. God is sovereign over Satan. Notice also that God is sovereign over the nations. Job lives in Uz. It's the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans that come to invade Job's land and raid his cattle and kill his servants. Unlike the false gods that many people worshipped in Job's day, God is not some local deity. God, God is not some, some little tribal God who only has authority over the people in the land of Israel. All of the world, all of the nations are under His sovereign control. The proverb says that the king makes his decision, but his will is like a river in the hand of God. He will turn it in any direction that he wants. We see in Isaiah and so many other books that God is the one who raises up kings and he is the one who brings them down. He is the one who uses them for his purposes and then will also judge them for their sinfulness. Even today when leadership and industry fail and economies plummet, God is still sovereign over the nations. When countries continue endless fighting and war, God is still sovereign over the nations. When nations seem hardened to the gospel, persecuting our brothers and sisters in Christ, trying to hinder the work of the church, God is still sovereign over the nations. More than that, God is sovereign over creation. Verse 16 says that fire fell from heaven and burned up Job's sheep and his servants. In verse 19, we are told that a great wind that came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house is what caused the house to fall upon Job's children, killing them. You know, throughout this book, we see a conversation between Job's friends and Job. They go back and forth. They're telling Job, you need to confess your sin, Job. All of this has happened because you're sinful. And Job says, I've not done anything to merit this. I've not sinned in any way that I've not made atonement for before God. There's, there's no reason for this. Only Job says, I, I wish God would just answer me. I wish you would talk to me face to face. And when God finally comes at the end of the book, the first thing he says is, Job, who made the heavens and the earth? Job, were, were you there when I formed it? Were you there when I made all things? God goes out of his way to show himself in those chapters 38 through 41 that he is sovereign over all of nature, from the smallest of animals to the most large and intense and ferocious. He is the Lord over the rain and the wind. So even a few years ago when the tsunami hit Thailand, and even now, as the typhoons converge over the Philippines, God is still sovereign over His creation. God is still the king. God is still in charge. Finally, we see that God is sovereign over sickness. We've already seen the terrible descriptions that Job gave to his illness. And in all of that, Job himself affirms that his afflictions came from God. In verse 21, in response to his wealth and family, Job says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. After he loses his health, his wife says, Why don't you just curse God and die? But Job says to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not also receive evil? Now some would say, Job is just flat out wrong here. Job, Job gets it wrong. You know, Job is just a naive, he's a primitive guy, and he has, you know, some, 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 some false ideas about who God is like, and he doesn't get it. For example, process theology would say, you know, just like the universe, God is still evolving, and he's not quite there, he's not quite there yet. He's, he's not evolved into the all-powerful, all-knowing, supreme king of the universe. No, he's not there. So when suffering happens, when bad happens, God just can't do anything about it. 
He's just, he's just not powerful enough. He's not, he's not evolving. He's not grown up enough yet as God. So he's not so- sovereign over suffering and evil. Then there is the famous Rabbi Harold Kushner. As he was reflecting on the death of his 14-year-old son from Progeria, he wrote a book called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And there he also says that God is not all-powerful. Here's a man who has devoted his life to the Hebrew Scriptures, and he comes away saying, God is not all-powerful. He cannot control the forces of nature. He cannot control sickness and sin. Therefore, when bad things happen, they happen because he doesn't, despite the fact that he doesn't want them to. Now, we ourselves may be tempted to read these two chapters and also tell Job he's wrong. We may be tempted to say, Job, we can see what you can't see. The author, the narrator has told us what you are never told, and that is Satan is the one who has afflicted you, not God. Job, don't say this came from God's hand. Say it came from Satan's hand. He's the one who did it. But what does Job say? The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Shall we receive good from God and not also evil? And the divinely inspired author says, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. In other words, Job is right. Job is right. Job understands that God is supremely sovereign over all things. Job knows that even when bad things, horrible things happen, it's not apart from God's permission. It's not apart from God's sovereign control in our lives. Now, I want us to be careful here because the Bible over and again affirms God's absolute sovereignty. But the one thing it will not do, the one thing it will not permit us to do is call God the author of sin, call God the author of evil. It, it, it holds a line there. And what it says is that though God is sovereign over all things, He is sovereign differently behind good than He is evil. It is an asymmetric correspondence. You know what that means? It means it doesn't look the same on both sides. So if you have a triangle and you cut it down the middle, what do you got? Two smaller triangles. But the Bible says when it comes to God's sovereignty... On one side, maybe it's good, it's a circle. On the other side, it's a square. He stands differently behind good and evil so that his holiness is never compromised. God is not the one who who brings about sinful things directly. In fact, the Bible very often will, in fact, almost always will say, when sin happens, it is the agent of sin that is held responsible. God is sovereign, but the man who committed the murder is the one who is responsible for the murder. So we get to Acts 2. And Peter is preaching to the Jews. And what does he say to them? He says, you killed Jesus Christ. You killed Jesus Christ. You, along with Pilate and the Romans, you did here in Jerusalem what God had determined would happen from before all time. You see what Peter just did? He said, the death of Jesus happened exactly as God wanted it to happen. In fact, he's called elsewhere the, the, the land that was slain before the foundation of the world. Don't think that Jesus was the victim of circumstances. He went knowingly to the cross. God sovereignly orchestrated things so that he died in that exact way. And yet Peter says, the Jews and the Romans and Pilate, they're the ones who killed Jesus. They are held morally responsible for what happened. And you say, well, that's convenient for God. Well, guess what? From our perspective, yeah, you're right, it is. When something good happens, God gets all the glory. When something bad happens, He doesn't get any of the blame. You say, how can that be? And here's where we invoke this great theological word, mystery. We, we, we don't know. 
The Bible does not tell us how that works itself out. All it says is, God is completely sovereign over all things. God is not the author of evil. And if that's what the Bible tells us, even though that does not fit together in our brains, we have to be okay saying, great. I, I, I am finite. I am limited. I am not an all-sovereign, all-knowing God. And so I, I, I don't get it, God. I don't see it. And, and maybe it still bothers you. Maybe, maybe, that, maybe that doesn't sit well with you. Guess what? That there is one that you can go and talk to and express that frustration. And it's not me, it's him. Because he's the one that told us this is the reality that I have created in which you live. Nevertheless, these two things stand together. Human suffering and God's sovereignty. Those are our two observations that we have made. The reality that humanity will and does suffer in this fallen world. This world marred by sin. And yet, in all of it, God stands supremely sovereign over all things. So now what do we do with this? What do we do with this information when we come to our own suffering? This is the third and final thing we want to see, and that is the worship of humble submission. The worship of humble submission. At the end of chapter 2, we are introduced to Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They are ones who do not even recognize Job after all his ordeal. We read that they raised their voices and they wept when they saw Job. They tore their robes, they sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven, and they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word, for they saw his suffering was very great. Now, first of all, I need to say, they, in these verses, they present an excellent pastoral example. There are times when someone is suffering, and we want to say something, and frankly, we shouldn't. We shouldn't open our mouths. We should just sit and weep with them. There, there is a time for that. Time for talking comes later. But first, sometimes it's best if we just sit and we just, we just share in the suffering of our friends. The problem with these guys is that then they, they don't stay silent after the week. They open their mouths, and that's where, that's where their trouble begins because they don't know God like Job knows God. They have a theology of retribution that says, you commit a sin, God thumps you on the head. You commit a really bad sin, God really hard thumps you on the head. Therefore... Therefore, because God can't be wrong, Job, you've done something to deserve all of this. What you need to do is admit your sinfulness, your secret sin that you're hiding, and God will perhaps pull this suffering away from you. But what we saw earlier was this isn't the way God works in the world. God is not a tit-for-tat kind of God when it comes to suffering. And Job tries to explain this to these people. There is nothing in my life that I have not already confessed to God. I give the sacrifices. I make atonement. I make myself right before God. I am blameless before Him and before you. He insists His innocence in all of this. But of course, they're not satisfied. And this endless circle of debate begins over and over and over again. And at the end, what comes out is that yes, Job was blameless, but in the midst of the frustrating cycle of arguing with his friends, he does succumb to one sin, and it was this. Here was Job's sin, not before the suffering, but after the suffering. He presumes that God owes him an answer to his questions. That was his sin. The sin was to justify himself before God and think that God owed him a response to the question, why? In chapter 38, after his friends are done talking, God comes down and he talks. 
God comes down and reveals himself in the storm. And for four chapters, he reminds God, Job of his unrelenting glory. He says, I am the maker of heaven and earth. I alone made all the forces of nature and keep them in check. I alone hung the stars in the sky and set them in their courses and keep them there. I alone created the dinosaurs and the wild beasts which no man can tame. I alone have given wisdom to even the smallest of animals that they might live with skill and survive in this world marred with sin and death. I alone have done all of these things, Job. I have made you. You are my creation. And in the end, Job sits in submission to God. And he does this for two reasons. And we need to learn this. We should submit because just like Job, we do not always understand. We do not always understand. In chapter 42, Job says this, in response to what God has said. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be, can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and I'll make known you to me. I heard of you before the hearing of the, by the hearing of the ear, but now I see you with my eyes. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes." Again, Job doesn't repent of some secret friend. His, some secret sin, his friends were wrong. Satan was wrong. God was right. Job was blameless before him. And he remained blameless. But he does repent of this one thing, thinking he deserved an answer from God. He repeats the question, the questions that God asked of him. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Job says, it was me. It was me. I tried to offer counsel without knowledge. I tried to say that you, O oh God, owed me an explanation of why all this has happened to me. But now I see I was wrong. It was sinful of me to do that. I am yours. And you can do whatever you want with me. The reality is, for us as well, we will never be able to see the end from the beginning like God. We are like the man who goes to the airport for the first time, a large one like LAX and LaGuardia and they see all of these airplanes going up and down and taxiing and waiting their turn and going and circling around and he thinks this is just chaos. How does any of this go successfully? When God is like the person in the control room calling the shots and saying you're going to circle here for 20 more minutes, you're ready to go and this guy is coming in and he can see the pattern of all things. We experience suffering. We cannot and should not expect an answer to the question why. Because this side of heaven, we're never going to be in the control room. We're never going to see the end from the beginning. We're never going to see what God is doing behind the scenes. The story that he is weaving together with the various threads of our lives to bring about glory for his name. And therefore, because we don't have understanding, we should not come expecting an answer. Instead, we should resolve to humbly submit to God and continue to worship him just like Job did. But secondly, we should submit because we have one worth trusting. We have one worth trusting that we are submitting to. The most amazing thing about Job is that never once throughout all of this did God, did Job say God was unjust? Never. He never said, I can't believe God did this to me. His only question was, I want to know why. In fact, when he first hears of this terrible fate that has befallen this family, it's one of, to me, the most profound and amazing and convicting verses in all the Bible. Job arose, he tore his robe, he shaved his head, and he fell on the ground. And I would say, wept. If I was writing the story, that's what I would say, because that would probably be my response. And yet here it says, he fell on the ground and worshipped. 
tore his robe and he shaved his head. He was acknowledging the pain of his suffering. He didn't shrug it off. He didn't put on some false bravado macho-ness and be like, eh, no problem, right? You can get a new family. You can, I can make some more money. No, he understood the depth of his pain. He showed all the world that his world was completely shattered. And yet in humble submission to God, he still worshipped. In the end, Job could do this because even in the midst of suffering, Job trusted God. Job trusted God. He knew of his power and his goodness. He banked his life on those things. So much so that in chapter 13, he says, Though God slay me, yet will I hope in him. Job says, God could just finish the task. And on my deathbed, I would still be putting my hope and my trust and giving worship to God. Job has good reason to do this because he knows that at the end of the day, despite all the suffering that we see in this world, God is merciful. He is still on this side of creation and the fall. He's still on this side of the flood. And he knows that so many times God could have very easily said, I am so tired of humanity. I am so through with their sin. And wiped us all out. And you know what? God had been perfectly just to do that. If he'd have saved one of us, you know what we could not have said? God, I can't believe he did that. You are evil and horrible and mean. Wouldn't we be able to do that? We'd say, God, you're perfectly just because they were your creation and they sinned against you. Therefore, you have done what is right. We need to see not just those things, but with we've saw with Israel and what we saw that Job did not see, what perhaps he never saw, and that is the great mercy of God demonstrated in the cross of Christ. Yes, God is sober over all things. Yes, He is good and just, but He is also merciful. And He took on flesh, lived as one of us. He lived alongside of us and he experienced suffering just like we did. He experienced homelessness. He experienced hunger. He experienced the pain of seeing relatives live and die. And then he went and endured the ultimate suffering, the full righteous fury of a holy God upon him in his ultimate innocence. Unlike Job, there was never a need for Jesus to go to the temple and offer sacrifices. There was no sin. And the greatest irony in the history of the world was that the most righteous man in the world was treated as the most filthy sinner. In fact, not just the most filthy sinner, but the most filthy sinner over and over and over, compounding exponential for all of us. So the next time we, next time we, we, we lose someone, we say, God, do you know what I'm going through? Do you know what it's like to suffer in this way? Understand God can say yes because my son suffered far more than you are right now. And it was through that suffering that I showed my love and my mercy. And in fact, promised that ultimately the suffering will not end. You see, this is, this is the entrance for the gospel with Job. And it's not just a righteous man suffering, but it's the end of the book when God restores to Job all that he has lost and more. At the end of the book, this is what we read, the last chapter. The Lord restored Job's fortunes. The Lord gave him twice as much as he had before. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter 
Jemima, and the name of the second, Keziah, and the name of the third, Karen Hapuk. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons, four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. God vindicated the righteous. God really was a just and merciful God. And here's the reality. In this life, yes, we will suffer. But for those in Christ, the suffering will one day end. God will vindicate us before all the world as He raises those slaughtered bodies of the martyrs, incorruptible, once again to look their accusers in the face and see, say, these people were righteous and they loved me and they died for the sake of my name. What you did to them could not hold them and you did not win. Sin does not have the final victory, friends. God has the final victory. Suffering may be mysterious to us now, but it will never finally be triumphant. Therefore, in the end, the message of Job is this. You can ask why. You can go to God and plead. and That's good. Pour your heart out to God. Why? Because He already knows what you're feeling. What, you think you're going to hide something from Him? But, but don't presume that you are owed an explanation of why. Don't presume ever in this life you're going to see the end from the beginning. God may do that in His grace, but usually He doesn't. And understand this, you can endure the suffering that you experience. You can find strength and peace by drawing close to the all-sovereign God who is also God of mercy and love for His people. Earlier I spoke about the young man who suddenly lost his daughter his wife then lost her father six months later. And just a week after the death of her father, six months after the death of her baby girl, this is what that young woman wrote on her blog. Our hearts, my heart is so hurting right now. I do not understand God the Father's plan in all of this. I have been emotionally angry at Him because my heart has been broken with these two great losses in our lives, my life. Right now I feel like a little girl sitting in the back seat of my daddy's car, kicking, screaming, and throwing a fit because in my pride, I believe that what I think is the best way to go is the way my daddy should go, but I cannot see what my daddy sees. He knows better than I what is ahead and where he is taking me, and he knows the best way to get me to the place he is taking me. I just have to learn to trust him and learn how to wait on him as he takes me to the place that we are going. There is a story behind this. But this is how I feel right now. I may be kicking and screaming, but at least I am God's child and He is my daddy. This is way more than a car ride, though. This is real life, and it hurts. And sometimes I get upset, and I miss Abby, and I miss my dad, and I don't understand why. And I hate sin and death. But I'm slowly believing. I'm beginning to trust again that my Heavenly Father knows what He is doing, that He is faithful, and that He will show me in His time. Something that helped me while... Something that helped me is something that took place while I was in Oklahoma for Christmas. I saw my cousin Becky, Bucky, who feels he is called to preach the gospel. He is young and passionate about God and so eager to learn about Him. And I was sharing an encouraging scripture with him and it reminded me of the time that God helped me to understand the scripture while I was in Bible college and working at night part time. The Lord was with me then. Will He not be with me now? I do not understand these circumstances and my heart is broken, but oh, may I trust in the Lord Jesus. He knows my brokenness more than anyone, for he gave up his life for us willingly. I have not given up my loved ones willingly. I trust that the Lord Jesus will be all that I need 
if I will let him be everything to me. Father, that is our prayer this morning. Father, we know that you are not just a good God, you are not just a just God, you are not just a sovereign God, but you are a God who ultimately will satisfy our souls. Father, ancient theologians as well as modern songwriters have acknowledged the fact that we are created with a hole in our souls. A hole that we try to fill with every imaginable thing, giving our love and worship to it, but ultimately only you are the one that will give satisfaction and joy and rest to our souls. Father, may we learn these things now so that as best as possible we will be equipped in suffering not to follow the advice of the foolish woman and curse you and be willing to give up our lives in death. But Father, like Job, may we mourn our loss and yet still worship you. And Father, in all of this, we pray, like our dear sister, that we would trust that the Lord Jesus will be all that we need if we will simply let him be everything to us, if we will simply let him be not just our Savior, but our Lord. Father, help us to learn from Job. May it be said of us when we die. That we were righteous, that we were blameless, and that we worshiped and trusted you.